Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 161, I Had Vision. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Visit all of the new Knitting Out Loud audiobooks at knittingoutloud.com. And you can download Knitting Out Loud audiobooks at www.audible.com. Also, holiday travel and craft lit take you to London, Bath, and Wales, October 2nd through 10th, 2010. Go to the craftlit.com page to learn more. Hi there. I'm sorry I wasn't able to podcast during the week. Uh, for those of you who are in real time, the host feed place. Uh, They had to close down for maintenance on the day that I normally post the podcast. And it turned out to be just as well because I had a ton of grading that I had to do. It was an embarrassing amount of grading. And um, and it's done now. And I'm much happier and much more relieved than I have been in a while. So, this episode is called I Had Vision as a little nod to one of my favorite movies, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I believe there is a line that's I got vision and the rest of the world is wearing bifocals. It's either I got vision or you got vision. I believe it's Paul Newman who allegedly has the vision. But here's the thing. I am not wearing bifocals. For real. Like he had a pair of reading glasses and I could tell that they helped, especially when I was on the computer. So then I got a pair of progressive glasses that I wore sometimes and it sure made a difference when... I was on the computer grading, you know, bouncing back and forth between distance and close-up, and I finally just caved. And so now I have new glasses. They are tray hip, of course, (laughs) because it's me, and I am nothing if not mad hip, yo. Uh, No, I'm tragically not that hip, but I like the glasses. I like them fine. Um, mm -hmm. Still a little unnerved by the whole wearing bifocals thing. But but you can't tell because they're progressives. So, you know, at least I can keep up the <laughs> the illusion of youth <laughs> for a little while longer. It's only a matter of time though. I have all sorts of really nifty things to let you know about. The first niftiest thing is we have our February incentive winner. There were quite a lot of you this month and I wrote down all your names on little pieces of paper and I drew the name of Jamie. Jamie of New York is going to get iHeart Patchwork 21 Irresistible Zaka Patterns to Sew by Rashida Coleman-Hale. Lovely little book. And for the March incentive, I have another book, which I've talked about before on on the podcast, So Liberated, spelled S-E-W, So Liberated, 20 Stylish Products projects for the modern sewist by meg McElwee. Uh, i talked about this as being just a really nifty and actually quite hip uh book but i wanted to reiterate a couple of things about this even though many of the patterns are really quite young in their uh appearance some of that is due to the the fabric choices that they made in uh in in the patterns but the other thing is they have things like a farmer's market bag and baby's first book a felted book, um, you know, where the, the, the leaves, the pages that you turn are pieces of felt with quilted felt and fabric patterning on them. And then there's also a baby carrier, which I think is really quite nifty. Uh, if you, like me, when you have uh, small children around, it is really nice to have them close to you. And there's, of course, the baby Bjorn, the kind of ubiquitous baby Bjorn, which is wonderful, but it does kind of splay their legs and you don't, my understanding is, I don't know, this could be completely apocryphal, but my understanding was that you don't want to keep them in that kind of carrier all the time because they'll wind up uh, with their hips kind of stretched out-ish. And so switching back and forth between a Bjorn, which in New York City was kind of de rigueur and 
some other kind of sling-ish carrier was a really good idea. We found, I think on the advice of someone else, something called a Maya wrap, M-A-Y-A. As far as I could tell back in the day, it was a sustainable um, project. You know, it was Guatemalan fabric. I believe it was built by women. It was somebody on Long Island who was selling them, I think. <laughs> this was 10 years ago. Yeah. But uh, they were really, it was wonderful because it was a giant piece of beautiful Guatemalan fabric with a humongous, uh, not a D-ring, but a, a circle ring that effectively worked like a D-ring. And because it was a humongous piece of fabric that all gathered into this ring, you could say, carry the kid around, sling them on your back, sling them on your front, sling them wherever you needed to. And then if you were going to, oh, I don't know, say Prospect Park in Brooklyn on a very sunny day, you could whip the baby out of that sucker and open it wide and you had a blanket for sitting on and picnicking on or, you know, whatever. I also managed to keep my kids in that sling, either on my hip or on my back or when they were very small on my front until they were close to three. Yeah, it was actually, you know, they got kind of heavy, but it was um, remarkable how much calmer I felt being out in New York City or even out at, say, a grocery store where little hands can do great damage. Uh, Just having them attached to me you know, and at my eye level, we could look at each other, we could talk to each other, they could hold and look at things, but they weren't going to run off and grab something. And, um, and so anyway, back to the book. This book also has a wrap pattern in it, which I really love. I kind of, I kind of am attracted to the idea of making your own purely because you know how sturdy it is. You know, you're carrying your baby around. It's one of those things. But the other thing that I liked about it is that in this book, there are very detailed designs about how to wrap the baby on. And, and it's quite a, a sizable piece of fabric that you're working with before you wrap the baby in it. And again, could be unfolded and set upon, which I, I really kind of dug. So, March Incentive Book, So Liberated by Meg McElby. Very excited about that. And congratulations, Jamie of New York, for getting iHeart Patchwork. I have a lot of things to inform you about. People have been writing in notes and questions and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, Kit Mf, <laughs> she, she left a, a comment on a far earlier uh, episode and her, her logon and her blog name is Kit Mf, K-I-T-M-F. I think her name is actually Kit, but this reminded me of in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which my sons adored. There's the and it's the acronym for whatever the machine is that's making all the food in the sky. And nobody ever says it exactly the same way twice. I felt like that trying to parse the name. Anyway, she let me know that there is now www.jeffersonhour.com all one word, dot org. This is Clay Jenkinson. This is the guy who was on the Aurora Forum at Stanford 150,000 years ago doing an evening with Thomas Jefferson. He has a podcast now. I am looking at his website. It's called the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and it starts, good day, citizen. (laughs) Thank you for visiting our website. For the tech-savvy Jefferson Hour fans, we are now on iTunes. You can subscribe to the podcasts free. You can also leave a question for President Jefferson. You can call him on his voicemail, (laughs) which is just wonderfully wrong, 701-221-2425. Speak clearly and leave your name, question, and contact information. I am so thrilled. That is just exciting. So I'm going to go and, um, and sign myself up for that one. Also, Julie of Forgotten Classics sent me weeks ago, and I just, um, I just completely forgot until I remembered at three in the morning last night, Nuit Blanche, or White Night for those of you who, like me, don't really speak French. It's an amazing short video. I am going to attempt to embed this 
on the Craftlet show notes. It's uh, I'm not going to tell you anything about how it's made. I'm not. You can you can click on the link and you can go look at the the making of video. But my goodness, this is a beautiful and and really kind of. Um, I don't want to use the word eerie because it's not eerie. It's just it's oddly moving and really wild little black and white video. So enough said on that. Nuit Blanche, um, very, very, very worth a quick look. And that's at the craftlit.com website. For those of you who are on the iPhone, I will see what I can do about getting a direct link to the video or embedding it somehow in the, the, um, body of the iPhone iTouch app. And if you have an iPhone or an iTouch and you are interested, you can get the Craftlit app, which means every time I post a new show, you open your Craftlit app and the new episode is there waiting for you. You can get all 161 episodes right there on your phone or touch. You don't have to do a thing except buy the app. It is as cheap as I could make it. I'm sorry it is not cheaper, but there it is. The other thing I wanted to tell you about, knitting out loud. Knitting out loud. If you went to the Knitting Out Loud website years ago, when, um, when Knitting Out Loud first became one of our sponsors, you saw a very different website from the one that is there now. I suggest you go take a look at www.outloudaudiobooks.com slash knittingoutloud.php or you can just go to knittingoutloud.com and it will redirect you. One of the things that the wonderful Kathy Goldner has done is where she has new releases posted on the, the show notes for her, well, not show notes, the website for her books. She has little audio advertisements now, not advertisements, but like, you know, public service announcements so that you know something about the book and the voices that you'll be listening to and all of that before you purchase the book. How cool is that, right? So my my most I am so excited about this. Wild Fibers. Wild Fibers, the magazine. Articles from Wild Fibers have now been compiled and they're read by the author. And it's a lovely little intro video. And of course, Wild Fibers is just the most amazing um, magazine. They they do phenomenal stuff about, you know, trying to preserve um, strains of animal fiber animals that, that might be lost otherwise, and it's just really cool stuff. We also have Mason Dixon knitting outside the lines. I have listened to this one, and I have to tell you, I, I got to meet Ann and Kay early on in the first wave of Mason Dixon knitting the, with the first book, and they are hysterical, and they are even more hysterical reading pieces from their blog and pieces from their book. And even far more hystericalness is possible to be found uh, on YouTube. I will link to Anne and Kay's video where they did their own take on Grey Gardens. If you don't know about Grey Gardens, you really need to go Google it. It's um, not to be believed, actually. I don't even know how to describe it. It's two sisters. No. It's a mom and a daughter. It's a mom and a daughter. Uh, they did the movie of it with Drew Barrymore and... Oh, heck. She's so good. Jessica Lang. And uh, I did not see it. I didn't get a chance to. I heard it was kind of, eh, that the documentary about them is actually better. But Anne and Kay's send-up of it is just spectacular. So Mason Dixon knitting outside the lines. There's also The Secret Language of Knitters, which is lovely. There's Knitting Yarns and Spinning Tales, and then there's some of the audiobooks that they've had for a little while. History of Hand Knitting, America Knits, the um, Knit Knit, Knitting Lessons, which is also lovely, Knitting Memories, No Idle Hands, one of my favorite books in the whole world, the Stitch and Bitch Knitter's Handbook, and The Art of Fair Isle Knitting, which is lovely. And there's just, there's just all sorts of goody wonderfulness there, to be had. So if you have a chance, do go and visit Knitting Out Loud. You can get there also from the craftlit.com show notes. You will see a button that links to the Knitting Out Loud site in the left-hand sidebar. 
Now, the last thing that I wanted to tell you about before I let you go is this. There is a new book coming from Interweave. And you know, because of the wonderful Jamie, we get, uh, we get information rather early on about Interweave publications. There's a new book that I'm going to tell you about more, well, I'm going to tell you more about next week. It is called Knitting Green by Anne Budd. Now, I know because we are artsy people and many of us are scrapbookers and painters and collagers and knitters and spinners and potters and all sorts of fabulous people. It's very rare that we don't uh, have visions of, ooh, I could use that or look at those antique buttons that I found at a swap meet. Those would be perfect for, or gosh, that's a cardboard cardboard egg carton. I could use that for thousands of different things. You know, that we, we tend to be kind of recycly folk and um, sustainably minded in general, and that's great. But, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, back and forth discussions. And I'll give you the, the example that has always been um, the most interesting to me, and it's with cloth diapers. There's no question that cloth diapers do not fill landfills, which is good. They, uh, they don't gunk up just about anything. Uh, however, if you live in the Northeast, that's kind of a no-brainer, no or even the Pacific Northwest, it's kind of a no-brainer. You go, oh, well, that's sustainable. That's fine. That's a great idea. Well, it gets more complicated when you're in the Southwest because cloth diapers require washing and not just a little washing, but quite a bit of washing. This is a problem in, say, Arizona, where the water table continues to recede, partially because people are still watering their lawns here. But, but the, you know, water is going to be a really important commodity here very shortly. And so now you have a choice. You have a decision that you have to make. Is it more important to conserve water or to keep plastic out of landfills? And I don't know the answer. I have no idea. And I've been frustrated with some of the knitting green information that I've gotten out in the blogosphere and, and uh, in some other books, because it seems to me that there's no real exploration of the difficulty in knowing whether this particular yarn really is green, like the bamboo stuff. You know, well, bamboo, bamboos, it's not like the fibers are pounded out and you know, like flax, they're spun together. Bamboo, from what I understand, is an extruded fiber. That means there's a chemical process. I don't know what those chemicals are. There's a chemical process by which the fiber is broken down and then reconstituted and extruded like through a pasta maker thing. I don't know. I have no idea. So this is the really cool thing. Knitting green takes the spin out of environmentally conscious knitwear. Anne Budd has done all the hard research for us. This book isn't out yet. It will be out on April 22nd, and I'm going to have more information on it for you next week. But just, you know, just as me, as a consumer of yarn and someone who cares about, uh, you know, trying not to ruin the world, <laughs> I, I kind of want it to be around for my kids and not have it be Wally out there. I, I'm so, so happy. Ann Bud has just done us all such a great service. So I'm going to stop talking about that, but I'm very excited and I hope you are too. And I will have more about that next week. I also, uh, I have a couple other things on the show notes. I have a picture of my friend Sam and the Canucks that I knit her. These are the, the pattern from knitty.com where you make fingerless mitts and you can uh, embroider uh, messages into the little knuckle sections of the mitts and she's uh, she's very happy and they fit and I did the textured cuff on hers which I hadn't done before and that came out so nice so I'm very happy about that and I wanted to share a happy picture with you. I also have a picture of what not to do in Arizona. Amy at nitty.com sent me a link to this picture. There is a kind of cactus here if you ever visit there's a kind of cactus here called jumping choya. 
Choya comes in many different forms. There's teddy bear choya, there's spiny choya, there's something else. Something. There's like, I don't know, 15 different kinds of choya. Jumping choya is called thus because the, the plant, the cactus, is jointed, meaning that it's sectional and the sections are rather tenuously connected. So sometimes the wind will blow and it'll knock off a piece of the choya. There may be, I don't know, anywhere from three to six inches long. If you walk too closely by a choya, it can jump off and attach itself to you. Just the, the motion that you create, the movement in the air that you create by walking by it can make this choya jump off and, and attach itself to you. And these spines hurt. There is a picture of a guy who was golfing. I think he's golfing up in Phoenix and he fell in a choya or stumbled into a choya. I have no idea. But when you see this picture, you'll know which cactus you have to avoid because you can see lots of those sections stuck on him. It's really, it's horrifying. But if you're traveling here and you have small children and you want to convince them not to touch the fuzzy looking choya, yeah, this one will do it. That was just whoa, way too much, way too much sticky stuff in somebody's body. I also wanted to uh, let you know, in case you are feeling completely insane, Script Frenzy is coming. This is the script version of National Novel Writing Month. They start April 1st, which is kind of funny, and you're supposed to write an entire screenplay in the month of April. I'm I'm actually kind of considering doing this and taking the novel that I wrote and finished last year and converting it into a screenplay because I'm having such a hard time writing the sequel. <laughs> so I'm kind of going to do the Barton Fink thing where when the Coen brothers were writing Barton Fink, it was, it was too hard and they got stuck. So they wrote Miller's Crossing and then they came back and finished Barton Fink. I don't have any illusions about whether I'm going to wind up writing something as good as either of those two movies, but I'm going to have fun, I think. So Script Frenzy, scriptfrenzy.com. You can link to it through the um, National Novel Writing Month, nanorimo.org.com. And, uh, and you can join me in the insanity. Lots and lots of fun. Okay, so Persuasion. <gasps> persuasion. I watched this week with my husband the movie Becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway. And the reason I did this, when it first came out, I heard, I don't know, I read reviews and they're like, well, you know, it's dubious reality, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, well, you know, do I really want to watch a fake biopic? And the answer is no, I don't want to watch a fake biopic. However, I was on one of the Jane Austen sites out of Bath, like the Jane Austen Society or Pemberley.com. It was one of these things that are affiliated with her, her, her memory, her history, preserving all of this and, um, and educating people, you know, bringing, bringing the news to the masses as it were. And they cited the movies having been really quite good and based in reality. So I was fascinated. So I went and watched it and it's really quite lovely, heartbreaking, heartbreaking, but lovely. And oh my goodness, doesn't it resonate with the story of persuasion? If you haven't seen it, it's probably worth a look-see. It's beautiful for one thing, and they do a really nice job of showing kind of middle-class life. You know, they're not impoverished, but they're not rich. And watching how the other half lives, you know, because Austin is, is always writing about the balls and the dances and the clothes. and Well, she doesn't really talk about the clothes, but... You know, you get a, a very particular vision of life back then from her stories. And her life had moments that were related to things that happened or happen in her books. But her life was a lot more mundane and regular, not surprisingly, right? But it's, it's just really, it's nice to see. It was also really nice to see that the Empire empire wasted the empire wasted dresses that you know have the the gathering is right below the bust line so that you don't really have a waist so much they didn't wear those dresses for day labor it's really interesting if only to look at the costumes it is worth it's worth taking a look at so 
Anyway, today in Persuasion, we are going to do chapters four and five. And some interesting things happen in these chapters, not surprisingly, right? The first thing to know is that when we get into chapter four, this is where you get the background on what had happened to Anne Elliot and the gentleman in question. It'd be Mr. Wentworth. Um, it's, it's, I think I mentioned last time in the first three chapters, the word persuasion gets mentioned a number of times, and even more so in this chapter. So don't be surprised when it's all about persuasion. <laughs> what with it being the name of the book and everything. Uh, it's a sad chapter. Not horrifyingly so, but it's one of those tragic moments where you know, people gave bad advice and, and somebody has to suffer for it. However, Jane Austen does something that's really quite tricky in the narrative, in how she writes this book in general. And it's, it's not something that she hasn't ever done before, but it's something that I noticed a lot more in this book, where she allows her narrator to speak for some of the characters. So she has a third person narrator. It's not Anne telling the story. But uh, the, the narrator, it's not like they get, the narrator gets into the mind of the person in question. The, the narrator just speaks with different characters' voices. So every once in a while, the unnamed narrator will speak for um, uh, Elliot, the, the baronet, and uh, Sir Walter, and, um, and sometimes speak for Elizabeth, and sometimes speak for Mary. Now, in chapter five, and I'm just going to play these back to back, in chapter five, Mary speaks, and Mary cracks me up. If I worry sometimes that I am Mary. This is not good. Uh, if you saw the wonderful Emma Thompson, Kate Winslet, um, Sense and Sensibility, do you remember the wife of the brother? The, the two women have the brother who's a total wimp, who's inheriting everything when their father dies and doesn't give them much money on the advice of his really quite horrible wife. Her voice is the voice that I hear when I hear Mary. She's just like fingernails on a chalkboard. And yet her marriage is evidently a happy one. I guess her husband is, is pretty good natured about the whole thing and just kind of laughs it off and goes hunting. But she's, she's truly a pain. And Jane Austen does a wonderful job in the scene between Mary and Anne at Mary's home of, uh, <laughs> of showing how overly dramatic, melodramatic Mary is about her own illnesses and how much it is a load of malarkey. So that's kind of fun to watch. Um, let's see. There's also, uh, there's a lot of setting the stage, kind of moving the chess pieces around, which as we know, you know, happens in the first few chapters of a book. Um, it's also, it's also important to understand this. Charles Musgrove, who is married to Mary, the horrible sister, <laughs> not that the other two sisters are either of them very good. Um, he's, they have money and they owned, they own land but they don't have a title. So they don't really have the connections that the Elliots do, but because they have money, they're okay. So when Sir Walter and Lady Russell get together on, on Anne and tell her not to make a match that isn't worthy of her, Mary's match is okay. Mary's match is okay because there's money involved. It's not all about titles. You also really start to see and understand, once again, how brutal this classed system was on the woman. Uh, you know, un unable to inherit a fortune unless, you know, some extreme circumstances happened, there were no male heirs or, or whatever, and, um, and, and put into a position where your rank is your husband's, and therefore marrying for love might not be the best idea if you want to have anything remotely like an easy life. So there's lots to listen for 
in the next two chapters. And without sullying your mind any further, I'm going to just play the audio. Uh, the chapters, it's going to run a little long, but I think it's going to be worth it because I, I like having these two chapters be back to back. I think it's important. And, um, and so here we go. Chapters four and five of Jane Austen's Persuasion. He was not Mr. Wentworth, the former curate of Monkford, however suspicious appearances may be, but a certain Captain Frederick Wentworth, his brother, who, being made commander in consequence of the action off St. Domingo, and not immediately employed, had come into Somersetshire in the summer of 1806, and having no parent living, found a home for half a year at Monkford. He was at that time a remarkably fine young man, with a great deal of intelligence, spirit, and brilliancy and Anne an extremely pretty girl, with gentleness, modesty, taste, and feeling. Half the sum of attraction on either side might have been enough, for he had nothing to do, and she had hardly anybody to love, but the encounter of such lavish recommendations could not fail. They were gradually acquainted, and when acquainted, rapidly and deeply in love. It would be difficult to say which had seen the highest perfection in the other, or which had been the happiest she in receiving his declarations and proposals, or he in having them accepted. A short period of exquisite felicity followed, and but a short one. Troubles soon arose. Sir Walter, on being applied to, without actually withholding his consent, or saying it should never be, gave it all the negative of great astonishment, great coldness, great silence, and a professed resolution of doing nothing for his daughter. He thought it a very degrading alliance." and Lady Russell, though with more tempered and pardonable pride, received it as a most unfortunate one. Anne Elliot, with all her claims of birth, beauty, and mind, to throw herself away at nineteen, involve herself at nineteen in an engagement with a young man who had nothing but himself to recommend him, and no hopes of attaining affluence, but in the chances of a most uncertain profession, and no connections to secure even his father rise in the profession, would be indeed a throwing away which she grieved to think of. Anne Elliot, so young, known to so few, to be snatched off by a stranger without alliance or fortune, or rather sunk by him into a state of most wearing, anxious, youth-killing dependence. It must not be, if by any fair interference of friendship, any representations from one who had almost a mother's love and mother's rights, it would be prevented. Captain Wentworth had no fortune. He had been lucky in his profession, but spending freely what had come freely had realized nothing. But he was confident that he should soon be rich, full of life and ardour he knew that he should soon have a ship, and soon be on a station that would lead to everything he wanted. He had always been lucky. He knew he should be so still. Such confidence, powerful in its own warmth, and bewitching in the wit which often expressed it, must have been enough for Anne. But Lady Russell saw it very differently. His sanguine temper and fearlessness of mind operated very differently on her. She saw in it but an aggravation of the evil— it only added a dangerous character to himself. He was brilliant, he was headstrong. Lady Russell had little taste for wit, and of anything approaching to imprudence, a horror. She deprecated the connection in every light. Such opposition as these feelings produced was more than Anne could combat. Young and gentle as she was, it might yet have been possible to withstand her father's ill will, though unsoftened by one kind word or look on the part of her sister. But Lady Russell— whom she had always loved and relied on, could not, with such steadiness of opinion and such tenderness of manner, be continually advising her in vain. She was persuaded to believe the engagement a wrong thing, indiscreet, improper, hardly capable of success, and not deserving it. But it was not a merely selfish caution under which she acted in putting an end to it. Had she not imagined herself consulting his good even more than her own, she could hardly have given him up. The belief of being prudent and self-denying, principally for his advantage, was her chief consolation under the misery of a parting, a final parting. And every consolation was required, for she had to encounter all the additional pain of opinions on his side, totally unconvinced and unbending, and of his feeling himself ill-used by so forced a relinquishment. He had left the country in consequence. A few months had seen the beginning and the end of their acquaintance but not with a few months ended Anne's share of suffering from it. Her attachment and regrets had, for a long time, clouded every enjoyment of youth, and an early loss of bloom and spirits had been their lasting effect. 
More than seven years were gone since this little history of sorrowful interest had reached its close, and time had softened down much, perhaps nearly all of peculiar attachment to him. But she had been too dependent on time alone. No aid had been given in change of place, except in one visit to Bath soon after the rupture, or in any novelty or enlargement of society. No one had ever come within the Kellynch circle who could bear a comparison with Frederick Wentworth as he stood in her memory. No second attachment, the only thoroughly natural, happy, and sufficient cure at her time of life, had been possible to the nice tone of her mind, the fastidiousness of her taste, in the small limits of the society around them. She had been solicited, when about two-and-twenty, to change her name, by the young man who, not long afterwards, found a more willing mind in her younger sister. And Lady Russell had lamented her refusal, for Charles Musgrove was the eldest son of a man whose landed property and general importance were second in that country only to Sir Walter's, and of good character and appearance. And however Lady Russell might have asked yet for something more while Anne was nineteen, she would have rejoiced to see her at twenty-two so respectably removed from the partialities and injustice of her father's house, and settled so permanently near herself. But in this case Anne had left nothing for advice to do, and though Lady Russell, as satisfied as ever with her own discretion, never wished the past undone, she began now to have the anxiety which borders on hopelessness for Anne's being tempted by some man of talents and independence— to enter a state for which she held her to be peculiarly fitted by her warm affections and domestic habits. They knew not each other's opinion, either its constancy or its change, on the one leading point of Anne's conduct, for the subject was never alluded to. But Anne, at seven-and-twenty, thought very differently from what she had been made to think at nineteen. She did not blame Lady Russell. She did not blame herself for having been guided by her, but she felt that were any young person in similar circumstances to apply to her for counsel, they would never receive any of such certain immediate wretchedness, such uncertain future good. She was persuaded that under every disadvantage of disapprobation at home, and every anxiety attending his profession, all their probable fears, delays, and disappointments, she should yet have been a happier woman in maintaining the engagement— than she had been in the sacrifice of it, and this, she fully believed, had the usual share, had even more than the usual share, of all such solicitudes and suspense been theirs, without reference to the actual results of their case, which, as it happened, would have bestowed earlier prosperity than could be reasonably calculated on. All his sanguine expectations, all his confidence, had been justified. His genius and ardour had seemed to foresee and to command his prosperous path. He had, very soon after their engagement ceased, got employ and all that he had told her would follow had taken place. He had distinguished himself, and early gained the other step in rank, and must now, by successive captures, have made a handsome fortune. She had only navy lists and newspapers for her authority, but she could not doubt his being rich, and in favour of his constancy she had no reason to believe him married. How eloquent could Anne Elliot have been! How eloquent at least were her wishes on the side of early warm attachment, and a cheerful confidence in futurity, against that over-anxious caution which seems to insult exertion and distrust providence. She had been forced into prudence in her youth. She learned romance as she grew older, the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning. With all these circumstances, recollections, and feelings, she could not hear that Captain Wentworth's sister was likely to live at Kellynch, without a revival of former pain and many a stroll and many a sigh were necessary to dispel the agitation of the idea. She often told herself it was folly, before she could harden her nerves sufficiently, to feel the continual discussion of the Crofts and their business no evil. She was assisted, however, by that perfect indifference and apparent unconsciousness, among the only three of her own friends in the secret of the past, which seemed almost to deny any recollection of it. She could do justice to the superiority of Lady Russell's motives in this, over those of her father and Elizabeth. She could honour all the better feelings of her calmness, but the general air of oblivion among them was highly important from whatever it sprung, and in the event of Admiral Croft's really taking Kellynch Hall, she rejoiced anew over the conviction which had always been most grateful to her, of the past being known to those three only among her connections, by whom no syllable, she believed, would ever be whispered, and in the trust that among his, the brother only with whom he had been residing, had received any information of their short-lived engagement." That brother had been long removed from the country, and being a sensible man, and moreover a single man at the time, she had a fond dependence on no human creatures having heard of it from him. The sister, Mrs. Croft, had been out of England, accompanying her husband on a foreign station, 
and her own sister Mary had been at school while it all occurred, and never admitted, by the pride of some and the delicacy of others, to the smallest knowledge of it afterwards. With these supports, she hoped that the acquaintance between herself and the Crofts, which, with Lady Russell still resident in Kellich, and Mary fixed only three miles off, must be anticipated, need not involve any particular awkwardness. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 on the morning appointed for Admiral and Mrs. Croft's seeing Kellynch Hall, Anne found it most natural to take her almost daily walk to Lady Russell's, and keep out of the way till all was over, when she found it most natural to be sorry that she had missed the opportunity of seeing them. This meeting of the two parties proved highly satisfactory, and decided the whole business at once. Each lady was previously well disposed for an agreement, and saw nothing, therefore, but good manners in the other. And with regard to the gentlemen, there was such an hearty good humour, such an open, trusting liberality on the Admiral's side, as could not but influence Sir Walter, who had, besides, been flattered into his very best and most polished behaviour by Mr. Shepherd's assurances of his being known, by report, to the Admiral, as a model of good breeding. The house and grounds and furniture were approved, the Crofts were approved, terms, time, everything and everybody was right and Mr. Shepherd's clerks were set to work without there having been a single preliminary difference to modify of all that this indenture showeth. Sir Walter, without hesitation, declared the Admiral to be the best-looking sailor he had ever met with, and went so far as to say that if his own man might have had the arranging of his hair, he should not be ashamed of being seen with him anywhere, and the Admiral, with sympathetic cordiality, observed to his wife as they drove back through the park, "'I thought we should soon come to a deal, my dear, in spite of what they told us at Taunton.' The baronet will never set the Thames on fire, but there seems to be no harm in him. Reciprocal comments which would have been esteemed about equal. The Crofts were to have possession at Michaelmas, and as Sir Walter proposed removing to Bath in the course of the preceding month, there was no time to be lost in making every dependent arrangement. Lady Russell, convinced that Anne would not be allowed to be of any use or any importance in the choice of the house which they were going to secure, was very unwilling to have her hurried away so soon, and wanted to make it possible for her to stay behind till she might convey her to Bath herself after Christmas. But having engagements of her own which must take her from Kellynch for several weeks, she was unable to give the full invitation she wished, and Anne, though dreading the possible heats of September and all the white glare of Bath, and grieving to forego all the influence so sweet and so sad of the autumnal months in the country, did not think that, everything considered, she wished to remain. It would be most right and most wise— and therefore must involve least suffering to go with the others. Something occurred, however, to give her a different duty. Mary, often a little unwell, and always thinking a great deal of her own complaints, and always in the habit of claiming Anne when anything was the matter, was indisposed, and foreseeing that she should not have a day's health all the autumn, entreated, or rather required her, for it was hardly entreaty, to come to Uppercross Cottage and bear her company as long as she should want her, instead of going to Bath. "'I cannot possibly do without Anne,' was Mary's reasoning, and Elizabeth's reply was, "'that I am sure Anne had better stay, for nobody will want her in Bath.' To be claimed as a good, though in an improper style, is at least better than being rejected as no good at all, and Anne, glad to be thought of some use, glad to have anything marked out as a duty, and certainly not sorry to have the scene of it in the country, and her own dear country, readily agreed to stay.' This invitation of Mary's removed all Lady Russell's difficulties, and it was consequently soon settled that Anne should not go to Bath till Lady Russell took her, and that all the intervening time should be divided between Uppercross Cottage and Kellynch Lodge. So far all was perfectly right, but Lady Russell was almost startled by the wrong of one part of the Kellynch Hall plan when it burst on her, which was Mrs. Clay's being engaged to go to Bath with Sir Walter and Elizabeth as a most important and valuable assistant to the latter in all the business before her. Lady Russell was extremely sorry that such a measure should have been resorted to at all, wondered, grieved, and feared, and the affront it contained to Anne, in Mrs. Clay's being of so much use while Anne could be of none, was a very sore aggravation. Anne herself was become hardened to such affronts, but she felt the imprudence of the arrangement quite as keenly as Lady Russell. With a great deal of quiet observation, and a knowledge which she often wished less of her father's character, she was sensible that results the most serious to his family from the intimacy were more than possible. She did not imagine that her father had at present any idea of the kind. Mrs. Clay had freckles and a projecting tooth and a clumsy wrist, 
which he was continually making severe remarks upon in her absence. But she was young, and certainly altogether well-looking, and possessed, in an acute mind and assiduous pleasing manners, infinitely more dangerous attractions than any merely personal might have been. Anne was so impressed by the degree of their danger, that she could not excuse herself from trying to make it perceptible to her sister. She had little hope of success, but Elizabeth, who in the event of such a reverse would be so much more to be pitied than herself, should never, she thought, have reason to reproach her for giving no warning. She spoke and seemed only to offend. Elizabeth could not conceive how such an absurd suspicion should occur to her, and indignantly answered for each party's perfectly knowing their situation. "'Mrs. Clay,' she said warmly, "'never forgets who she is, and as I am rather better acquainted with her sentiments than you can be, I can assure you that upon the subject of marriage they are particularly nice, and that she reprobates all inequality of condition and rank more strongly than most people.' And as to my father, I really should not have thought that he, who has kept himself single so long for our sakes, need be suspected now. If Mrs. Clay were a very beautiful woman, I grant you it might be wrong to have her so much with me. Not that anything in the world, I am sure, would induce my father to make a degrading match, but he might be rendered unhappy. But poor Mrs. Clay, who with all her merits could never have been reckoned tolerably pretty, I really think poor Mrs. Clay may be staying here in perfect safety.' One would imagine you had never heard my father speak of her personal misfortunes, though I know you must fifty times. That tooth of hers, and those freckles—freckles do not disgust me so very much as they do him. I have known a face not materially disfigured by a few, but he abominates them. You must have heard him notice Mrs. Clay's freckles. There is hardly any personal defect, replied Anne, which an agreeable manner might not gradually reconcile one to. I think very differently— answered Elizabeth shortly. An agreeable manner may set off handsome features, but can never alter plain ones. However, at any rate, I have a great deal more at stake on this point than anybody else can have. I think it is rather unnecessary in you to be advising me. Anne had done, glad that it was over, and not absolutely hopeless of doing good. Elizabeth, though resenting the suspicion, might yet be made observant by it. The last office of the four carriage-horses was to draw Sir Walter, Miss Elliot, and Mrs. Clay to Bath. The party drove off in very good spirits. Sir Walter prepared with condescending bows for all the afflicted tenantry and cottagers who might have had a hint to show themselves, and Anne walked up at the same time in a sort of desolate tranquillity to the lodge, where she was to spend the first week. Her friend was not in better spirits than herself. Lady Russell felt this break-up of the family exceedingly. Their respectability was as dear to her as her own— and a daily intercourse had become precious by habit. It was painful to look upon their deserted grounds, and still worse to anticipate the new hands they were to fall into, and to escape the solitariness and the melancholy of so altered a village, and be out of the way when Admiral and Mrs. Croft first arrived, she had determined to make her own absence from home begin when she must give up Anne. Accordingly, their removal was made together, and Anne was set down at Uppercross Cottage in the first stage of Lady Russell's journey. Uppercross was a moderate-sized village, which a few years back had been completely in the old English style, containing only two houses superior in appearance to those of the yeomen and labourers. The mansion of the squire, with its high walls, great gates, and old trees, substantial and unmodernised, and the compact, tight parsonage, enclosed in its own neat garden, with a vine and a pear-tree trained around its casements. But upon the marriage of the young squire, it had received the improvement of a farmhouse elevated into a cottage for his residence— and Uppercross Cottage, with its veranda, French windows, and other prettiness, was quite as likely to catch the traveller's eye as the more consistent and considerable aspect and premises of the great house, about a quarter of a mile further on. Here Anne had often been staying. She knew the ways of Uppercross as well as those of Kellynch. The two families were so continually meeting, so much in the habit of running in and out of each other's house at all hours, that it was rather a surprise to her to find Mary alone. But being alone— her being unwell and out of spirits, was almost a matter of course. Though better endowed than the elder sister, Mary had not Anne's understanding nor temper. While well and happy and properly attended to, she had great good humour and excellent spirits. But any indisposition sunk her completely. She had no resources for solitude, and inheriting a considerable share of the Elliot's self-importance, was very prone to add to every other distress that of fancying herself neglected and ill-used. In person she was inferior to both sisters, and had, even in her bloom, only reached the dignity of being a fine girl. She was now lying on the faded sofa of the pretty little drawing-room, 
the once elegant furniture of which had been gradually growing shabby under the influence of four summers and two children, and on Anne's appearing greeted her with, "'So you are come at last. I began to think I should never see you. I am so ill I can hardly speak. I have not seen a creature the whole morning.' "'I am sorry to find you unwell,' replied Anne. "'You sent me such a good account of yourself on Thursday.' "'Yes, I made the best of it. I always do. But I was very far from well at the time.' and I do not think I ever was so ill in my life as I have been all this morning, very unfit to be alone, I am sure. Suppose I were to be seized of a sudden in some dreadful way and not be able to ring the bell. So Lady Russell would not get out. I do not think she has been in this house three times this summer. Anne said what was proper, and inquired after her husband. Oh, Charles is out shooting. I have not seen him since seven o'clock. He would go, though I told him how ill I was. He said he should not stay out long, but he has never come back, and now it is almost one. I assure you I have not seen a soul this whole long morning. You have had your little boys with you? Yes, as long as I could bear their noise, but they are so unmanageable that they do me more harm than good. Little Charles does not mind a word I say, and Walter is growing quite as bad. Well, you will soon be better now, replied Anne cheerfully. You know I always cure you when I come. How are your neighbours at the great house? I can give you no account of them. I have not seen one of them to-day except Mr. Musgrove, who just stopped and spoke through the window, but without getting off his horse, and though I told him how ill I was, not one of them had been near me. It did not happen to shoot the Miss Musgroves, I suppose, and they never put themselves out of their way. You will see them yet, perhaps, before the morning is gone. It is early. I never want them, I assure you. They talk and laugh a great deal too much for me. Oh, Anne, I am so very unwell.' It was quite unkind of you not to come on Thursday. My dear Mary, recollect what a comfortable account you sent me of yourself. You wrote in the cheerfullest manner, and said you were perfectly well and in no hurry for me, and that being the case, you must be aware that my wish would be to remain with Lady Russell to the last. And besides what I felt on her account, I have really been so busy, have had so much to do, that I could not very conveniently have left Kellynch sooner. Dear me, what can you possibly have to do? A great many things, I assure you. "'more than I can recollect in a moment, but I can tell you some. "'I have been making a duplicate of the catalogue of my father's books and pictures. "'I have been several times in the garden with Mackenzie, "'trying to understand and make him understand which of Elizabeth's plants are for Lady Russell. "'I have had all my own little concerns to arrange, books and music to divide, "'and all my trunks to repack, from not having understood in time what was intended as to the wagons. "'And one thing I have had to do, Mary, of a more trying nature, "'going to almost every house in the parish as a sort of take-leave.' I was told that they wished it, but all these things took up a great deal of time. Oh, well, and after a moment's pause, but you have never asked me one word about our dinner at the pools yesterday. Did you go, then? I have made no inquiries, because I concluded you must have been obliged to give up the party. Oh, yes, I went. I was very well yesterday. Nothing at all the matter with me till this morning. It would have been strange if I had not gone. I am very glad you were well enough, and I hope you had a pleasant party. "'Nothing remarkable. "'One always knows beforehand what the dinner will be and who will be there, "'and it is so very uncomfortable not having a carriage of one's own. "'Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove took me, and we were so crowded. "'They are both so very large, and take up so much room, "'and Mr. Musgrove always sits forward. "'So there I was, crowded into the back seat with Henrietta and Louisa, "'and I think it very likely that my illness to-day may be owing to it.' A little further perseverance in patience and forced cheerfulness on Anne's side produced nearly a cure on Mary's. She could soon sit upright on the sofa, and began to hope she might be able to leave it by dinner-time. Then, forgetting to think of it, she was at the other end of the room, beautifying a nosegay. Then she ate her cold meat, and then she was well enough to propose a little walk. "'Where shall we go?' she said, when they were ready. "'I suppose you will not like to call at the great house before they have been to see you.' "'I have not the smallest objection on that account,' replied Anne. "'I should never think of standing on such ceremony with people I know so well as Mrs. and the Miss Musgroves.' "'Oh, but they ought to call upon you as soon as possible. They ought to feel what is due to you as my sister. However, we may as well go and sit with them a little while, and when we have that over we can enjoy our walk.' Anne had always thought such a style of intercourse highly imprudent, but she had ceased to endeavour to check it, from believing that, though there were on each side continual subjects of offence, neither family could now do without it. To the great house accordingly they went, to sit the full half-hour in the old-fashioned square parlour, with a small carpet and shining floor, 
to which the present daughters of the house were gradually giving the proper air of confusion, by a grand pianoforte and a harp, flower-stands and little tables placed in every direction. Oh, could the originals of the portraits against the wainscot, could the gentlemen in brown velvet and the ladies in blue satin that seen what was going on, have been conscious of such an overthrow of all order and neatness? The portraits themselves seemed to be staring in astonishment. The Musgroves, like their houses, were in a state of alteration, perhaps of improvement. The father and mother were in the old English style, and the young people in the new. Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove were a very good sort of people, friendly and hospitable, not much educated, and not at all elegant. Their children had more modern minds and manners. There was a numerous family, but the only two grown up, excepting Charles, were Henrietta and Louisa, young ladies of nineteen and twenty, who had brought from school at Exeter all the usual stock of accomplishments, and were now like thousands of other young ladies, living to be fashionable, happy, and merry. Their dress had every advantage, their faces were rather pretty, their spirits extremely good, their manner unembarrassed and pleasant. They were of consequence at home, and favourites abroad. Anne always contemplated them as some of the happiest creatures of her acquaintance, but still, saved as we all are by some comfortable feeling of superiority from wishing for the possibility of exchange, she would not have given up her own more elegant and cultivated mind for all their enjoyments, and envied them nothing but that seemingly perfect good understanding and agreement together, that good-humoured mutual affection of which she had known so little herself with either of her sisters. They were received with great cordiality. Nothing seemed amiss on the side of the great house family, which was generally, as Anne very well knew, the least to blame. The half-hour was chatted away pleasantly enough, and she was not at all surprised at the end of it to have their walking-party joined by both the Miss Musgroves, at Mary's particular invitation. End of chapter 5 One of the things that I found most interesting in this chapter was what just got said towards the end, that even though the Miss Musgroves and their whole family are happy and content, and the sisters actually like each other, and everybody gets along in a way that Anne's family simply doesn't, she still wouldn't trade her breeding, her elegance, her intelligence, her training for their life. Which I suppose in some ways is kind of the devil you know sort of thing. You know, if, if you're going to take off with, your, with dirty laundry, you're going to take your own. But I, I've always thought that that was kind of an interesting moment there. Um, and, and insight into Anne's character a little bit there. So the beginning of chapter six which we will do next week, is, I think, one of the funniest chapters. Because now you've got this social situation set up between uh, the Elliot girls and the Musgrove family, and, <laughs> and you've got Mary. And Mary is just a cause for amusement on my... <laughs> I find her hysterical. So we start there next week. And that's going to be fun. I wanted to remind you to please visit the LibriVox.com support site. There is a link to that page on the show notes at craftlit.com. There's a button on the left-hand side, halfway down, that says LibriVox. It's a dark green button right underneath where you see Knitting Out Loud. And that will give you an easy opportunity to help the good people at LibriVox. Um, they certainly have helped us over the years and Lord knows I appreciate their hard work and devotion to getting this audio out for the masses to enjoy. There's also something that Erin, who um, did the fairy tale podcast for a while, she said she found a thing through iTunes, which I think, I think I've talked about before. Through iTunes University, it's um, called Lit2Go, L-I-T number 2 G-O, all one word. It's the University of South Florida. Um, they're trying to collect audio of quote-unquote significant literature. And some of the color fairy books by Andrew Lang are there. There's Austin, there's Uncle Tom, there's The Little Lame Prince and His Traveling Cloak. There's all sorts of stuff that you may have lost track of in your life, but that still exists there for, for everybody's enjoyment. So yay! Thank you to Aaron and getting us that information you can access lit to go through iTunes, and I believe they have a website, too. I'm going to have to look for that. Anywho, that takes us to the end of our show today. 
Ooh, we're coming in right at an hour. I am so happy. I hope you have a wonderful week. I will speak to you next week. And um, ooh, next week in Tucson is the Festival of Books. This is when hundreds and thousands of people descend upon the University of Arizona. Many of them authors, children's authors, adult authors, all sorts of authors. And um, it's just a big celebration of bookishness. So I will be heading out to that when I speak to you next. I hope you have a great week. I hope I do too. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.